My name's Dan and it's uh, great to see you here with us this morning. As a church we love to listen to God, we believe that he speaks to us through the Bible um, and so we have a time now listening to that. We're following a series, Making a Difference Where You Are. This is number five in that series and we're looking at uh, a letter uh, called 1 Peter but I'll come to that in a moment. But just as we open up the, the Bible in a moment, let's pray together now. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you've made yourself known to us. And our Father, we pray that you'd come by your spirit now and teach us from your word. Please do that work that we've just been asking you to do in that song. And especially, Lord, please lead us on the road of sacrifice. Show us Jesus and show us how to live for him in the world in which you've placed us. Amen. Well, uh, actor and comedian Ricky Gervais uh, describes some Christians as evil fundamentalists. And he's also apparently equated religion with cancer. Funny guy, I, I like his comedy, but he's described some Christians as evil fundamentalists. Or take this quote from popular atheist Richard Dawkins. Faith is one of the world's great evils. He's, uh, Richard Dawkins has also implied that to teach children religion is like child abuse. Uh, In an interview um, with uh, the TV network Al Jazeera, the interviewer read a quote from one of Dawkins' books. And uh, Dawkins wrote, Horrible as sexual abuse no doubt was, suffered by some children at the hand of some priests, the damage was arguably less than the long-term psychological damage inflicted by bringing the child up Catholic in the first place. Was Dawkins really serious? The interviewer asked. You believe that being brought up as a Catholic is worse than being sexually abused by a priest? And Dawkins replied that there's shades of abuse. And he quoted the example of a, of a woman uh, who was sexually abused by a priest. And uh, supposedly she said, I could get over that but the long-term impact of being taught things about God, about eternity, apparently to her and to Dawkins, were a worse abuse. Is Christianity evil? Are Christians evil? Or just think about Christians portrayed in the media as religious bigots, self-righteous hypocrites. How have Christians responded to homosexuality and gay marriage? What about child abuse scandals? Children being sexually abused by those who are trusted to care for them in positions of trust in church communities. I'm not sure we quite appreciate how negative an opinion the people around us can sometimes have about our Christianity and perhaps even, by extension, us. Either way, popular culture certainly entertains a negative stance towards Christianity, doesn't it? Even if you're not evil, you're probably a loser. That's probably how a lot of us are viewed. Even if we're not evil, we're probably losers for believing this stuff. And maybe some people here today are listening to this with painful memories of occasions where you've been mistreated by a church or by individual Christians. You don't need Ricky Gervais or Richard Dawkins to raise these questions. You have personal experience. Well, how are we to live and work in what can sometimes be a hostile world. 
This is also a very real question for the Christians who uh, the letter we're looking at this morning was written to. This letter is in the New Testament part of the Bible and was written by one of Jesus' closest followers. It's said that stories circulated about the early church that Christians engaged in incest, sexual activity between close relatives, and even cannibalism, eating human flesh, at their church meetings. Stories circulated that Christians engaged in incest and cannibalism at their church meetings. I don't suppose anyone thinks that's what we're up to today. A Roman historian even commented that Christians were loathed for their immoral habits and depraved conduct. How were the early church to respond to this slander? How should they counter these false accusations and malicious rumors? How can we respond to our media's version of this hostility today? Well, let's hear the answer given through Peter in the second chapter of his first letter. Please grab a Bible from the seats in front of you and follow with me from verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. I think you'll find that's on page 1,218. 1,218, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The church then are presented here as strangers and aliens living among pagans. We're not used to those terms. Let's unpack that a little before we move on to to follow what Peter says. So strangers and aliens could also be translated as foreigners and exiles. Understandably, we don't use the term aliens in this way these days. In fact, most of us probably find that mildly amusing. Uh, I can just... uh, Oops. I can just imagine arriving in an airport terminal, going through border control, and seeing signs for aliens to queue here. But uh, maybe that's just the kind of humour that amuses me. But immigration's quite a political hot potato right now, isn't it? According to Wikipedia, the law which provided the basis of immigration control was the Aliens Act, 1905, followed by the Aliens Restrictions Act of 1914 and 1919. And they've, of course, been superseded, and we're not into politics today, so there we go, I'll move on. But my point is we don't use the word alien in quite the same way these days. Most of us think of extraterrestrial beings, E.T., when we hear the word alien. But alien, in immigration terms, refers to someone who came from someone else, not so much from another world as another country. And so Christians are in this world. Peter has already introduced this theme in verse one, uh, in chapter one, sorry, verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I meant to check that she was okay with me saying this, but I didn't. Sorry, Tracy. But think of Tracy's husband, Dave, working overseas in another country. He temporarily lives there, but he's not taken up permanent residence there, nor has he changed his citizenship. He's still a British citizen. And similarly, Peter has already introduced the strangers' exiles theme right at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, where he addresses his recipients as God's chosen people, exiles scattered throughout various provinces. Exiles are those who've been taken from their own place, their own country, removed from their home where they belong to somewhere else. 
The point is, Christians are only temporary visitors in this world. Our citizenship is in a different realm. We belong to another country, the kingdom of heaven. Peter's terms for the inhabitants of this world, those who belong to this realm, are is pagans. And it doesn't carry the same meaning we attach to it today. This verse is not saying that everyone who's not a Christian is necessarily a pagan witch. That's not what Peter's saying. The term is meant generally, like the term the Jews of the day used for anyone who wasn't a Jew. Gentile. That's actually the Greek word that Peter uses here. The word for Gentiles. People who aren't Jews, or in this case, people who aren't Christians. And in fact, all Christians used to be citizens of the world. They weren't always aliens, strangers, exiles. They used to live lives characterized by sinful desires. Those desires that are said now to still wage war against them. But, but, and you can read all this in chapter 1, they have now been redeemed from that way of life, rescued and brought out of it, and given a new, pure, and enduring life in Christ. And because of this work of Christ in them, chapter 2 begins, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Christians are new people with new identities, new passports, if you like. They're no longer citizens of this world. They belong instead to the holy and pure kingdom of heaven. As such, Peter urges them to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter urges them to abstain from their sinful desires because that's not who they are now. They've been mercifully given a new life in Christ. You've been chosen, called, forgiven, washed clean, made holy. Now live like it. But there's another reason for this urging of Peter, and it's a really important one. Really important because it has to do with the honor of God. Please look again at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which, to desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How were the early church to respond to slander? How should they counter the false accusations and malicious rumors? How can we respond to hostility today? Live such good lives among the people who we're living amongst that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This then is the basis for the following verses, verses 13 to 20, and it's the honor of God that is at stake. If you've read Matthew's gospel or you remember our recent series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you recall that Jesus recorded in chapter 5, verse 16 of Matthew's gospel, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In these verses in 1 Peter, Peter outlines just two areas where Christians can make a difference. Two areas where Christians can live in such a way as to bring glory to God from those among whom they live. And in some cases, 
This will even include those people among whom we live being themselves rescued and brought into the kingdom of heaven. The goal here isn't just living great lives. The goal here is that people notice that requires us to be among them if they're going to notice us. The goal here is that people notice and that they see the transformed lives of believers. And seeing that, the suspicions that Christians practice evil disappear and people turn and glorify God. John will continue this letter next Sunday when we'll see some further areas that Peter goes on to cover. But for now, we're just going to look at verses 13 to 17 next. And the first area Peter talks about is submitting to those in in authority. Please take a look at verses 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's servants or slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Christians are to abide by the laws of the land in which they live, even though they are only really temporary visitors there. Back to Dave... He's a British citizen working abroad. He does not belong to the country in which he's living and working. And yet, he still ought to abide by their laws. He'll probably have some problems if he doesn't. Clearly, we don't have an emperor or absolute monarch in the UK. I know we have a queen. I'm not that thick. But her power is limited. She's a constitutional monarch. But the emperor or king, who Peter referred to here, ruled with absolute power absolute power. But we can apply this principle to our system of government and authority. For us, this would look like obeying and upholding the laws set by our government, respecting all those in authority, police, law enforcement, local government, I suppose maybe even teachers if you're still at school, but uh, I don't think anyone here is that I can see. It's God's will that we submit to these humans in authority by doing this good. Sorry, it's God's will that we submit to these humans in authority. And by doing this good, we silence those who slander us. Indeed, not only silence them, but cause them to glorify God as they see our good deeds. So how might this affect my driving? What does it look like to submit to the speed limits and rules of the road set by human authorities? How might this affect my leisure if I submit to copyright and intellectual property laws? Actually, this is an area that I found personally challenging when I became a Christian. I'd grown up, uh, I'd grown quite a, I was only a a student when I became a Christian, um, so I had amassed quite a collection of music. I love music. And I'd grown quite a collection of cassette tapes and CDs, but a lot of them were copied illegally. Sometimes I'd buy a CD. I hope no one's kind of listening that will get me into trouble for this. Um, But uh, I'd buy a CD from a shop, and then I'd go home, and I'd copy it, and then I'd take it back and return it to the shop and swap it for another one and take that home and copy that. That, that, That's what I did. I didn't do that loads, but quite a lot. (laughs) And you kind of think, well, that's a bit pushing it, isn't it? But it's okay to copy a CD off a mate, isn't it? It's okay to share some digital content. What's wrong with that? Where's the harm? These people make millions. 
What does it look like to uphold a copyright law? What does it look like to uphold intellectual property laws? In case you're wondering, I destroyed those CDs when I became a Christian. Well, not straight away. What's so bad about it? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And we might think about tax returns and things like that. If anyone is uh, doing your tax returns, what does it look like in that area? There's all sorts of areas, isn't there? But there's a qualifier here. There's a qualifier. We're not to submit to government when government calls us to go against God. We are not to submit to government when government calls us to go against God. God does not call us to submit to ways that go against him for his sake. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? He's saying submit for the Lord's sake, but don't submit to something that goes against him for his sake. Christians obey governing authorities because that obedience is God's will, it says here. So the supreme authority is not the government, but God himself. We do it because it's God's will. And as Peter highlights, the governing authorities are just human authorities. They're created human beings. Their authority is less than that of the creator. These verses even refer to us as God's servants or slaves, though we ought not to think of that as an oppressive thing. God's slaves, being God's slaves, are being his people who are liberated for freedom, to live for God in true freedom. And notice also in verse 17 how it's only God who we fear. God alone is the one who to be, is to be feared, held in reverent awe, total respect, complete trust, absolute authority. I find this explanation from Don Carson really helpful, commenting on Proverbs 9, verse 10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. He says, The fear in view is not the kind of cringing fear that a whipped dog has when you pick up a newspaper, knowing that you're an arbitrary and cruel master who extracts cheap glee out of scaring the poor little thing to death. None of us here do that with our dogs, I'm sure. This is the fear of God that recognizes that he is matchlessly holy, righteous, and just. And we are not. God is our judge as well as our only hope. There lies the beginning of wisdom. You might recall that Peter himself had to discern this kind of course of choosing between obeying authorities or obeying God when they're in conflict. When the rulers and elders and teachers of the law, those human authorities in Acts chapter 4, commanded Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Acts 4 says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. So let's say your boss requires you to cheat someone out of something, to lie to a supplier or a client, to deceive another employee of your company. What do you do? Submit to those in authority, in this case your boss. If you know that's what's being required of you, conflicts with what God wants of you, with what pleases him, then the route we're to take is to live as God's slaves, as God's servants as God's liberated people 
In this area of submitting to authority, am I living such a good life that people who don't believe in Jesus will notice that assumes I'm living among them? I'm amongst them and good deeds that are visible to them and see and glorify God. Am I living so radically good that they'll be provoked to investigate the person and work of Jesus and come to saving faith themselves? Am I outdoing the world in doing good, in living like this? But we must move on to consider very briefly the second area Peter now addresses where Christians can make a difference, where Christians can live in such a way as to bring glory to God among those whom they live. And remember, the goal is people being brought to faith as they see the transformed lives of believers and suspicions that Christians practice evil being seen to be without basis. So please read on to verses 18 to 20 of 1 Peter 2. Uh, In this section, we're looking at suffering injustice for God. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now let's be clear, these words were written in Peter's original letter addressing real, actual slaves. And this is a category that we don't have today, at least not legally and and not in the same sense as the culture of Peter and his readers lived in. But still, we can helpfully draw some application to our modern day relationships where we might be contractually obliged to someone, our employer, for example. So we could take these verses as encouragement to submit to our employers, our bosses, in reverent fear of God. Notice again that this is fear of God that informs our submission and obedience, as it did in submission to human governing authorities. I'm sure most of us have bosses who are good and considerate. I, of course, do. I have to say that. Um, but, uh, uh, but some of us have bosses or employers who are, well, I probably shouldn't use the language you might use to describe them. We might not want to articulate how we feel about them. Let's use Peter's term, harsh. In fact, no matter how harsh our employers might be, it's extremely, extremely unlikely that any of us are treated as harshly as the slaves of Peter's day, who could be beaten and abused by a harsh master. And the law wouldn't care. Some schools of thought even went as far as viewing slaves as possessions, not persons. If they're not people, then you can't mistreat them. So the thought went. Someone has written that slaves in the Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hand of their owners, and children born in slavery belonged to masters rather than the parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them physically and sexually. So none of us faces exactly this treatment that Peter's referring to. But some of us do work for harsh people. In fact, Harsh could be better translated corrupt, morally bankrupt. And those of us who call Jesus Lord need to obey and submit to our employers, even though they may be corrupt or disreputable. And again, though, a corrupt employer, or even a good one for that matter, is not our ultimate authority. We fear God alone. 
Jesus alone is our ultimate master. And so Peter's not saying that we follow a corrupt boss into their corruption, but he's saying that we submit to them as far as we can within what is pleasing to God. So maybe you work for an account manager who's known within your company for ripping people off. You must, in reverent fear of God, submit to her. You must. You cannot refuse to manage her filing or send her emails unless she ropes you into ripping people off. Unless to write the email is to participate in the corruption. In that case, you must, in reverent fear of God, refuse to write the email. God always comes first. And I'm sure you could translate that into the situations that you find yourselves. And then you suffer. If you don't comply, then you suffer. You suffer for the sake of God. And this, Peter says, is commendable. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, and not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. It's commendable. God will commend you, reward you. The word is actually grace. It's a grace. God will give you a grace. Maybe Peter is referring again to the inheritance kept in heaven for believers that he begins the letter with in chapter 1. You really do need to read chapter 1 to fully understand chapter 2. Funny that. But we'll receive this grace if we bear up under unjust suffering because of God. But Peter now has moved beyond just referring to slaves and includes all believers in these verses 19 to 20. But do notice that two conditions have, been satisfied, have to be satisfied for us to qualify for Peter's comments here. Two conditions. First, the suffering must be for doing good. Peter's not talking about an eternal reward for those who suffer because they're incompetent at their job or because they're lazy or obstinate and fail to do what they've been asked to do. He's certainly not talking about suffering because we were rude, ungracious, impatient, snappy, talking back at our boss. That's not what he's talking about. The suffering must be for doing good. And secondly, the suffering must be because we are conscious of God. That is, brought about because of our relationship with God. Because we're living a life that pleases God. That we're going his way. And this suffering theme occurs throughout this letter. And uh, I wish we had more time to go through. But if you're making notes and you want to follow it through, then, then just scribble down chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, and chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. If you didn't catch those, feel free to ask me afterwards. But Peter's letter is filled with this theme of suffering. But the suffering here is, not, is a particular suffering, isn't it? I'm really conscious that some of us here today are in the middle of some really, really bad suffering, some stuff that we're finding deeply painful and hard. And all of us will have been through or will go through that when we live long, in this, long enough in this world. But this suffering is suffering for doing good and suffering because of God, because of our following of God. Well, in this area of suffering injustice for God, am I living such a good life that people who don't believe in Jesus will notice I'm among them as I suffer this injustice? 
And will they see? Will they glorify God? Am I living so radically good that they'll be provoked to investigate the personal work of Jesus and come to saving faith themselves? We need to outdo the world in suffering unjustly for the name of Jesus. Peter now reasons why we must live this way. Finally and briefly, the example and salvation of Christ. Please read with me from verses 21 to 25. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Three things in these verses. The example of salvation of Christ. First of all, there's an example to follow. An example to follow. You see, all that Peter's requiring of believers so far in this letter, in these verses we've been looking at, is following the example of Christ who suffered, who suffered unjustly, who suffered silently. Peter quotes back to Isaiah 53 and verses that speak about the way Jesus went silently, how he complied with this injustice. All that we're being called to do is follow the great example of Jesus who suffered. But Jesus is more than an example to us. He's more than an example to us. We'll come on to that in a second. But just one thing to note about how he suffered and thing that will help us when we're going through this. Did you notice there, it said that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to God his Father. He handed it over. He will judge. God will judge. Maybe after a delay, maybe not immediately, but handing it over, trusting it to God to judge. Jesus' suffering was an example to follow, but it was also a salvation to receive. Please especially look at verse 24, and if you've drifted off, then now is the time to come back and zone in for a few more minutes, because this is the most important thing I'll say. Shame it's at the end, but there we go. This is the most important thing I'll say. Please look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus' suffering wasn't just an example. Jesus suffered bearing our sins, taking them on himself. This verse picks up something from the Old Testament part of the Bible, an idea that's in the, uh, one of the books called Deuteronomy which talks about God's curse on someone. God's curse being on someone who's left hanging on a tree. Many people of the day saw Jesus on a cross hanging on a tree and concluded that therefore he died under God's curse and therefore how can he be the Messiah? How can he be the one who came to rescue us? Cursed is the one who's hung on a tree. And they were partly right, because Jesus did die under the curse of God. Jesus did die on the cross 
under the curse of God. Cursed is the one who's hung on a tree. But it was our sins he bore. And that's the whole thrust of Isaiah 53 that Peter's got in his mind here. And I'd just love to read that as well, but we can't. But Isaiah 53 is full of this idea that we thought he was stricken by God. We thought God was crushing him. But he was crushed for our iniquity. It was our sin that was laid on him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I wonder if you've received that salvation. Does your heart warm as you reflect on that? Or if this is new to you, I'd love to speak to you about it afterwards. I'll be around the foyer somewhere. Please come and ask me or Joe or anyone you've seen up the front. Finally, really finally, very quickly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. There's a righteousness we can live because of Jesus' death. Do you remember those opening verses? Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. How do we do that? These sinful desires are waging war against my soul. How can I live free from them? How can I abstain from them? Because, because Jesus bore my sins in his body on the tree, so that I might die to sin and live for righteousness. Jesus' death was an example for us to follow. It was a salvation for us to receive. But also in it, there's a righteousness that we can live. We can live life free of sin. We can overcome our sin. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of Jesus' death. Let's pray before we sing that in song together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with this salvation, who's called us to this living hope, who's guaranteed for us an inheritance which is secure, unfading, kept for us, who's washed us clean, who's given us new life. Father, we thank you that in the death of Jesus, there's power for us to live in righteousness to overcome sin that that wages against our soul. Father, thank you that in Jesus our sin was born by himself on the tree, that as he suffered the curse, it was for us. And so we can live free, forgiven, adopted and welcomed in as your children, your beloved children. Father, we thank you And we pray that you'd help us to to follow the example of our Lord Jesus. As we live lives in this world among those who you called us to be amongst. Father, please would you help us to bear up under unjust suffering. Help us to entrust those situations to you. Maybe those of us here today who might be weighed down by something like this. Help us to entrust it to you, we pray. And Father, help us to be really good citizens in uh, submitting to the law. Even though we ourselves are foreigners 
exiles, strangers, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Father, help us, help us to do good, such good, that those among us take notice and see it and glorify you. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.